May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. I'm, I'm willing to bet that just about every person in this room, every person listening to this sermon right now, wherever you are, has had the experience of trying to be the Good Samaritan in some situation and it going poorly. Is that fair to say? Yeah, okay, yeah. You know, whatever lovely, pure intention it was um, that you tried to put out there, Uh, ending up being thwarted by the realities of people's dysfunction and deceit and mental health stuff, whatever might be going on. And maybe you doing the helping, of course, uh, makes you realize that it's a lot more about you doing the helping and your self-image than the helping itself. I want to assure you that if this is the case for you and you find yourself in this position, you are not alone. Because we hear this text... Right, which for many of us is one of the more familiar ones, if not the story itself, the kind of climax or message that is usually taken away from it. Good Samaritan is a phrase that is one of those that's just out there in culture, even in our many ways very secularizing culture. Um, It's one of those Bible things that has managed to stay around. I think that's probably a good thing. But a lot of times when we hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think we tend to focus on the guilt that maybe we have, that maybe we feel when we see ourselves in the place of the priest or the Levite in the story. The ones who pass by, the ones who continue along on their way, kind of looking out for themselves, or at least just passing on the opportunity to help this person in need. And for people who live in cities like ours, this, is, uh, this kind of thing is just a regular reality of trying to walk down the street, trying to commute. We know precisely this kind of scenario. It really is impossible to make a pass over this passage without thinking about that specifically from our own lives. But if you think back to your own experience of maybe trying to do something like this, um, trying to play this role, there's something actually emotionally available to you that I think is very important. Because there's another way to read this parable which I think offers a lot of perspective about what life in the world is really like, and on some level what Jesus, as recorded by Luke, seems to be trying to do with this parable, this teaching of his, maybe on a more subtle level. So instead of seeing ourselves as being the guilty party in the story, the person who passes by, the priest or the Levite, we might do well, actually, to imagine that we are, in fact, the good Samaritan, and what it would actually be like to take on that role. Certainly what Jesus is pushing the lawyer um, uh, toward asking him, you know, who is my neighbor, to do. If you think about what the guy is doing, so he's seeing this guy and being overwhelmed by compassion first. Encountering him, as you may know, on this road, um, which in biblical terms is quite dangerous, the fact that these robbers have overtaken him, attacked him, Um, It's not that shocking. It's almost implied. People would know this road as a dangerous one. And so he finds him, and he has compassion, and he says, I have to do something. I have to do something about this. And that something is caring for his body, his wounds, his immediate needs, his flesh and blood needs, and then also financially, um, essentially putting him up in a hotel at about two days' wages, however much that could cover. 
and saying, if he needs more, let me know. I can manage that. But what this Samaritan has done is actually within reach for a lot of us in a certain sense. It's not utterly outside the realm of possibility. The questions, of course, begin to arise pretty quickly. Is this a person who needs more than just a couple of nights to get back on his feet? Is he someone who was basically otherwise self-sufficient, who just fell on hard times in this one moment of violence, uh, wrong place at the wrong time? Or is he actually someone who chronically needs this kind of addressing of his needs and much more and doesn't have the help of family or friends? Was this Samaritan the first person who stepped in and done this kind of thing in a long time? Is this something that is repeated over and over again? And how long and what precisely might he have needed in order to get where he needs to be beyond this violent episode? Quick pass over this story is a sort of helper, helpy, in terms of its power dynamic. But again, if you consider all the possibilities out there, there's potentially a lot more need than he's able to address. Why was it that this man was so dependent upon the random kindness of one single stranger in the first place? Why wasn't there a safety net of some sort, if not from a state, literally from just some sort of community that might have been able to surround him and support him? Why wasn't that a part of this episode? And why is it that when we see the Good Samaritan, we see and celebrate him as this kind of lone ranger figure who, against all odds and without anyone else in the mix, is jumping in as the sole hero to help and aid and console, why do we think it's only his responsibility? Why do we think that's a good thing? It reminds me of often how we think and talk about climate change, actually. We have this way of feeling personally guilty about it, sort of taking on the whole psychic weight of the issue upon our individual selves and of what we see happening in the world based on science, based on empirical data. We know it's happening. We know it to be true. But when, in fact, things like whatever we might find ourselves individually doing, the choices we make, this, the bit of recycling we do, um, the choices we make in terms of how we shop, these things that we should still do, um, we certainly should still do them. But in the face of what's actually needed, what actually would be necessary to turn, to stem the tide on climate crisis, you and I, individually, are not responsible in any comparable way to the fossil fuel industry, to mining companies, to weapons manufacturers. There's something just kind of incorrect about taking the whole emotional pressure of having to respond individually in this way. If anything, what gets revealed is kind of, maybe there isn't a whole lot I can actually do about this, at least not without some solidarity, some organizing. But it's not actually about my individual moral guilt. Actually, maybe that doesn't help so much. And by the same token, nor is it about what I can actually necessarily do here in this given situation of pain and hurt and poverty with this man on the street. This might be true, too, for Jesus, who is telling this story about this man on this dangerous road, beaten, left half dead, the text says. They beat him up. They take everything that he has, leave him hurt enough that without attention he might likely die. But that from this, the only way he might survive is this random kindness from a stranger. 
Well, what do we think about that? What do we think about that as a community? What do we think about that as a society? I don't want to say that there isn't something for us to hear, however Luke intends for us to read this text, um, that isn't a sort of straightforward wondering about the world and what might be possible. Like, what, what if we just did this? What if we could, as people of faith, just be the kind of people who are able to lead with these amazing gestures of generosity and kindness and compassion without thought, without hope of personal gain, um, what if the world was just like that? What kind of world would that be like? It's something I do want us to hear and maybe dream about a little bit. But there are a couple of other things glaring at us here in this text, and one is just the immensity of human suffering, the immensity of the brokenness of the world around us, and really what it would actually mean to help someone like this as the Good Samaritan. I spoke to a mental health expert once um, about a patient that I was seeing when I was a hospital chaplain. We we're kind of talking about how this person was very emotionally difficult in terms of their own mental health, and didn't seem to have much of um, family or friends to kind of support them in their personal life, sort of in and out of the hospital for that reason. And isn't that so sad? And really shouldn't we try to do something a little bit over and above the norm to give, give this person a break. And the person I'm talking to, of course, says, well, speaking out of my clinical experience, um, what would actually, uh, based on what I know about them, what would actually help this person actually is 30 days minimum inpatient somewhere with someone really, really good, and then ongoing therapy and care probably more than once a week for a long, long time. So just in terms of the time spent, the price tag itself, you can see, right, this is a long shot. When we read this parable, part of what we're supposed to hear is just how profoundly heavy the load is, how profoundly broken this world is, just how limited our response might be. That might sound like bad news. And when we get up here, we're supposed to be the ones preaching good news, right? So what's the good news here? I think what we need from Scripture is an interpretation that is honest, that is true, that is human, as well as divine. Our sacred texts have to say something that is true to us, to our world, you and me today, here and now. And if they don't, they're kind of just interesting stories, ancient stories that we kind of pass over, um, and really that's about it. But if we hear about the Good Samaritan and how when Jesus tells the lawyer who is questioning him to go and do likewise, and we realize, wow, there is a real impossibility in front of me if I try to do this thing in real life, in the real world, is this supposed to simply paralyze me from doing anything, anything good in the world in this way? I want to suggest no, or at least, that the yes or the no from any of us is not a cheap or uninvested yes or no. It is a response that sees the fullness, the depth of human suffering and of systems of oppression and violence that characterize so much of our lives, our day-to-day -day realities if we look them in the face. And both making note of that overwhelming reality 
and still saying that God's grace, God's love, God's absurd lavishing of mercy means that there is always something more for us to say, something more for us to do in spite of it. There's always something more for us to do, not as the Savior, not as the Redeemer. There is truly, ultimately, only one of those, and it is not you or me. But in his name, knowing that we cannot save everyone, knowing that we cannot cure everyone, there is still something for us to do. And it is in acting out of that place of what feels like impossibility, hopelessness even, that faith is truly alive. If faith is hoping for things unseen, then faith is when we act in the world in a way that tells us that this dead-end situation is not the final world. Faith is when we say, I don't know what is coming of this, but I am doing what I know to do, what I know how to offer, and trusting that God will gather the crumbs of mine that I offer and make them into something beautiful and filling. Faith is the opposite of naivete. It is saying, I know what the world is actually like, and the fullness of its ugliness and of its beauty. And from that, saying, I know what I have to offer, regardless what happens, and just doing it. Should we do that, as the Good Samaritan did, as this lawyer hears the story, as Jesus teaches and says, go and do likewise? Not as the hero, not as the one who swoops in and saves the day, not as the one who righteously knows what to do and simply does it, but meagerly, humbly offers the bit that he has and hopes that it'll do. Then we too, like that good Samaritan, step into the place of faith. And for this broken, wounded person we encounter, we are like Christ for a moment. If we do this, we may indeed find our way to eternal life. Amen.